0: Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for that last song that encourages us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, Lord, to ask ourselves, have we been washed in the blood of the Lamb of our Lord Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself on the cross in order to wash us clean from our sins, to set us free from the guilt and penalty that, rested upon us because of our rebellion against God. We thank you that our Savior has made a free and a full atonement, and he invites any and all who would come to, to come to the cross by faith and to be washed and to be made white as snow. Lord, I pray that each one of us here has done that and that we see this not as just something that we do at one moment in time, and then we just leave the cross and we live the rest of our lives, never giving Christ another thought. Lord, that is not what faith looks like. That's not what faith is. Faith, as that song said, is a daily, moment by moment, resting and coming to Christ as our only hope and our only source of salvation. Lord, may that be the kind of faith that we have. And we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that that faith would be established within our hearts and strengthened, Lord, and any who do not yet possess that faith, that through your word, you would grant them that repentance and that faith to come to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. We won't be in 1 Corinthians this morning. Um, I wanted instead to just think a little bit about what has happened in our nation this, this month. Two tragic events have taken place in our country this month, the month of May. On May 14th, a young man murdered 10 people in a top supermarket in Buffalo, and he appeared to be motivated by a hatred for people of a different ethnicity than his own. Then on May 24th, another young man gunned down 19 children and two adults in an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And as a result of this, the families of those victims are no doubt experiencing a grief that words cannot begin to describe. And out of that grief, they are likely asking very difficult questions. Questions like, why did this happen? Why did God let this happen? Those are the questions that Fill the sobbing prayers of the heartbar- heartbroken when they have experienced a, dev- a devastation that they did not ever see coming. And sadly, living in a fallen, sin-sick world like ours means that our own lives will not remain untouched by tragedy and loss and painful grief. There will be times in each of our lives when we find ourselves asking those same questions questions god why did you let this happen we'll ask ourselves we'll ask god why he didn't stop a personal tragedy from happening to us or to those that we love and when those times come we can find our faith greatly shaken we can begin questioning everything that we thought we believed in asking is this really true and so it's important during such storms of life that we have an anchor for our soul. We need bedrock truths to stand on. We can't, during those times, rely on easy platitudes that are like eating dirt. These things that we tell each other going through life, these easy things that everybody can affirm, but when the rubber meets the road we find that is not even close to what I need right now. We need truth that is firm, that is objective, that doesn't blow in the wind, that stands when those things come into our lives. And my prayer is that the passages that we look at this morning will give us those truths that will help us to weather those storms in such a way that our faith is strengthened rather than shipwrecked when we come out on the other side of it. And we may not always get an answer to that prayer that we cry out to God. God, why did you let this happen? But there are truths that we can know, which will carry us through those long nights that are filled with unanswered questions. So we're going to look at some scriptures that deal with suffering. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Job. It's right before the book of Psalms, toward the middle of your Bible, Job chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to make a distinction, a distinction between the suffering of believers and the suffering of unbelievers. Because there are overarching truths that the believer needs to pay particular attention to when tragedy strikes. And there are other overarching truths that the unbeliever needs to first pay special attention to when tragedy strikes them. And we'll look at these in turn. First, what truths should the believer cling to and remind himself of when tragedy strikes him? And the first truth that is an anchor for our souls when we are struck by tragedy is this. God is sovereign. God is in control. And for that, I want us to read Job chapter 1. And I'm just going to read verses 1 through 19. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And this is not a bedtime story. This is a true story. This really happened. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. This was a wealthy, well-off man. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This was a man... Who loved his children. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that is the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, "'The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you.' While he was still speaking, another also came and said, "'The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you.' While he was still speaking,' Another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So four of his servants come back to back to back to back, and they tell Job that he has lost everything. He's lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, and worst of all, his ten precious children. Now, I don't know what you've suffered in your life, but I have to guess it probably hasn't been anything like this. If this had happened to you, how would you have responded to that? Would you have cursed God? That's what the devil was hoping Job would do. In response to this. But what did Job say? Look at verse 20. What did he do? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Just let that sink in. Job has just been told he's lost everything, and he's lost all of his children, those who were the apple of his eye, and he worships God. Then he says, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So rather than curse God, he blesses God. Job acknowledged that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things, and he's the owner of all things. Everything that Job possessed had been given to him by God. And Job recognized that God had the right to take back what had been given. Then verse 22 says, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now that's not a very helpful translation because it makes it sound like Job did not think God was behind it all. But clearly he did. He credited God with what had happened More literally, this verse reads, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he ascribe unseemliness to God. That is, he did not charge God with wrongdoing. God, or excuse me, Job clearly attributed what had happened to God, but what God did not do was say that God was wrong in bringing this upon him. And at this point, we often wrongly accuse Job of bad theology here. We know from chapter 1 that it was Satan who was the immediate cause of this tragedy that fell upon Job. But notice what the text here in verse 22 tells us. Job did not sin in what he said. His theology was spot on. Though he was unaware of who the immediate cause of his suffering was, Satan, he knew full well who the ultimate cause of his suffering was, God. God was the one who had given Satan permission to afflict Job in this way. Satan is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And Job was right to attribute what had happened to God. Now there's more to say. I'll come back to this verse. But it's going to move us into the next truth that we need to cling to in the midst of tragedy. But before we go there, I want us to linger on the truth of God's sovereignty for a moment. Let's go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 2, verse 1 Again, there was a day when the sons of God, the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Notice that God himself takes the credit for what has happened. We need to be careful not to rescue God, not to try to rescue God from claims that he himself makes. We are not more holy than he is. He continues on in verse 4, or the narrative continues on. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. So not only has Job lost his property and lost his children, now he's lost his health. He's afflicted with boils throughout his whole body. Then look, let's look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Keep in mind that though Job's wife was not afflicted with the boils, she did share in the heartbreaking loss of her children. And she has reached the end of her limit. She thinks it's pointless for Job to hang on to his integrity, that he should curse God and just die. So not only does Satan want Job to curse God, now his wife wants Job to curse God as well. But yet, how does Job respond? Verse 10, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, Job is crediting God ultimately with what has happened. And again, his theology is spot on. God is sovereign. He's sovereign not only over the good things that happen in our lives, but the painful things as well. And again, the divine verdict on Job's comment here is this In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. When we suffer, we need to remind ourselves of this that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the good things that happen to us and he is sovereign over the bad things that happen to us. A lot of times we think that God is not the one who brings pain into our lives. We get this idea in our heads that, you know, God, bless him, he tries so hard, he tries really hard to bless us, but just sometimes Satan gets the upper hand and infiltrates his defenses and just wreaks havoc. Poor God, I wish... He, he was a little bit stronger that he could do what he wants to do. That's a totally unbiblical view of who God is. God's control over the entire universe and his control over every single detail of our lives is total and it's absolute. And in the vast expanse of this universe, there's not one molecule, there's not one atom that makes a move without God's say-so, without his permission. There is not one hair that falls from our heads apart from God ordaining that to happen. Not one skin cell sloughs off your body without God determining that that happened. There is not one moment of suffering that has entered into your life or that will enter into your life that God has not already determined from before time began would happen. God is sovereign. Now, this truth that God is sovereign, it's not particularly comforting if it is not paired with another truth. And that brings us to this second truth that we need to cling to as believers when tragedy strikes. And it's this, God is good. God is good. Back in chapter 1 of Job, this seems to be indicated in what the narrator had to say in verse 22. He said, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he ascribe unseemliness to God. Or, nor did he charge God with wrongdoing. In what Job had said, saying that this came from God, he did not accuse God of doing evil. That is, he did not deny that God was good. You see, God's sending of affliction into our lives is totally consistent with his goodness how is that so well for that i want us to turn to another passage it's it's very clear in the scriptures how it is that suffering in our lives is consistent with the goodness of god scripture makes that clear but it's especially clear in romans chapter eight turn to romans chapter eight everybody okay back there Romans chapter eight, verse 28. Paul here, who had his own share of great suffering, listen to what he says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that in this passage, it tells us what God causes to work together for good. What does he cause to work together for the good of believers? All things. Not some things. Not only the good things. All things. Including bad things. Painful things. God is good. He does no wrong. God does no evil. But he is in control over evil. And he turns even evil things into good for his people. That's what God does. For believers, that is, those who have repented of their sins and have placed their faith in Jesus alone to be their Savior and Lord, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, every single moment of suffering in our lives is being used by God to accomplish good for them. No pain is wasted. No grief is pointless. No tragedy no loss will remain unredeemed by God. He's using all of it to accomplish something. And what is God using all of these things in our lives, painful and otherwise, what is he using that to accomplish in our lives? Verse 29, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That process of sanctification, where we become more and more like Jesus Christ in our character, that process will be completed, as it says at the end of verse 30, when we are glorified. And when that day comes, we will see that all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the tears that God has seen fit to bring into our lives will have been well worth walking through. Because in that day, when we see our Savior face to face, and the transformation is complete, and we are made just like him, we will look back and we will see how God has molded us to become more and more like our Savior. And it will all be worth it. That's what Paul thought, verse 18 of this chapter. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we suffer and when tragedy strikes, we may not know the why. God never tells Job why he permitted this to happen, why God in his sovereignty determined this season of suffering for Job. But the truths still stand. God is sovereign and he is good. George Mueller was an evangelist. And he was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in 1800's Bristol, England. And he was a man who also clung to these twin truths that God is sovereign and God is good. And again, it wasn't just an empty platitude for him, because I want you to listen to what he said during his funeral sermon that he preached for his own wife, Mary. He'd been married to that woman for 39 years. And the points of his sermon were three points. The first point was this, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Second point, he was good and did good in so long leaving her to me, 39 years. And the third point, he was good and did good in taking her from me. Listen to what he said when he got to that third point in his funeral sermon. Quote, Perhaps all Christians who have heard me will have no difficulty in giving their hearty assent that the Lord was good and doing good in giving me such a wife. And they will also probably most readily admit that he was good and doing good in leaving her to me for so long. But I ask these dear Christian friends to go further with me, and to say from their hearts, the Lord was good and doing good in the removal of that useful, lovely, excellent wife from her husband, and that at the very time when, humanly speaking, he needed her more than ever. While I am saying this, I feel the void in my heart. That lovely one is no more with me to share my joys and my sorrows, Every day I miss her more and more. Every day I see more and more how great her loss to the orphans. Yet, without an effort, my inmost soul habitually joys in the joy of that loved departed one. He's saying he's thinking of the joy that she was experiencing in heaven. And he was saying that his love for her made the realization of her joy bring himself joy. Because his beloved was so happy, that made him happy. He says, Her happiness gives joy to me. My dear daughter and myself would not have her back, were it possible to produce it by the turn of the hand. God himself has done it. We are satisfied with him. How is it that a believer can have this perspective when he's going through suffering? It's because of the truth that we saw in Romans 8:28. But still, how is it that we as believers have found ourselves in a position to know that God's goodness is working for our good? Why should God do that for us? We are rebels, sinners. We've earned nothing but the wrath of God because of our sin against him. But we know that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he has saved us. He God made flesh, exchanged his righteousness for our sin on the cross that he was nailed to. He bore the penalty of death that was due to you and me so that we might receive the eternal life that was due to him. Jesus has purchased for us the destiny that the Father has predestined us to, that is conformity to the image of his Son. Jesus bought that glorification that is coming for us with his own blood. And God is seeing to it that every single thing that happens in our lives as believers, including tragedy, God is seeing to it that it is contributing to our glorious destiny in Christ. God is sovereign. God is good. As believers, that is what we cling to when we don't know what is going on and why the world is falling apart around us. But what about the unbeliever? The unbeliever remains under the wrath of God. The unbeliever has not had his sins washed away. He's not been forgiven. He does not have a glorious destiny that he can look forward to. For the unbeliever, there is no hope in the midst of tragedy, no solace in his suffering. Instead, all that he can look forward to is an increase of suffering, that when he dies, there is nothing waiting for him but the lake of fire. How should the unbeliever view his experience of tragedy? This is where we come to when tragedy strikes the unbeliever. And to answer this, let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. We're looking at the first nine verses. And I want you to see here in this passage that when tragedy strikes the unbeliever, the truths that he should run to are these. God is merciful and God is patient. God is merciful and God is patient. Luke 13, let's look at verses 1 through 5. Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In verse 1, Jesus is informed about a massacre that apparently took place in Jerusalem. The governor of that city, Pilate, he had apparently launched an ambush attack on some Galileans while they were in the act of offering sacrifices. Jesus points out that this act of violence was not carried out against these Galileans because they were worse sinners than other Galileans. He's saying that's not the case. And then he brings up another tragedy to drive home that point. A tower falling on and killing 18 people. And he says the same thing. That didn't happen to them because they were worse sinners than you guys are. The Lord did not want the people that he was speaking with to take too much comfort from the fact that they had not suffered a similar fate. Just because they had not been subjected to such an act of violence or to such a tragedy, they should not take that to mean that they were spiritually better off than the people who perished tragically in those two events. We can fall into thinking that bad things only happen to bad people. If you read through the rest of the book of Job, that's what Job's three friends thought. They thought that Job was suffering all that he was suffering because there was some kind of unrepentant sin in his life. They couldn't have been more wrong about that. But the flip side is also true. Not only can we fall into thinking that bad things only happen to bad people, but we can fall into thinking that if something bad has not happened to me, that must mean that God thinks I'm a pretty good person. Karma and all that. Well, Jesus is going to correct that wrong way of thinking. And to correct that wrong way of thinking, he tells them a parable in verses 6 through 9. Jesus began telling this parable A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the, vine- the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any cut it down why does it even use up the ground and he answered and said to him let it alone sir for this year too until i dig around it and put in fertilizer and if it bears fruit next year fine but if not cut it down unbelievers are like that fig tree that was not bearing any fruit God has created mankind to bring glory to himself. And if you are not living for the glory of God, then you are like that fruitless fig tree that uses up the ground. And as the creator, God owns all things. He made everything for himself. And just as if I planted that fig tree and saw that it was just sitting there dead, I would rip it up by the roots because it's my fig tree, I grew it, I planted it. So God can deal that same way with his creation because he owns all things. So it would be good and right for God to cause the unbeliever to perish for refusing to surrender his life to God. But if you're an unbeliever today, you are still alive today. God is giving you time. And so when tragedy strikes you, and yet leaves you alive, or when you hear of tragedy striking someone else, you should not be thinking, I must be a pretty good person since this has not happened to me. Instead, you should be thinking, God is showing me mercy. God is being patient with me. God is giving me time to repent of my sins and to surrender my life to Jesus Christ To trust in him as my Savior and as my Lord. In the parable, that fig tree was given one year to start bearing fruit. Not only that, but it was going to be given every chance possible to bear fruit. The vineyard keeper, he was going to dig around it. He was going to fertilize it. But if it did not begin bearing fruit by the following year, it was going to be cut down. If you're an unbeliever this morning, you don't know how much time you have. Those precious souls in that top supermarket and in that elementary school, they had no idea that that day was going to be their last day. And you, if you're an unbeliever this morning, you have no idea if today will be your last day. And God is giving you every opportunity. You hear the gospel this morning that Jesus who is God, became a man and he lived a righteous life in your place. And then he went to the cross where he bore the sins of sinners in their place and he suffered the penalty that they deserved to suffer by dying on that cross. And then when he was buried on the third day after the fact, he rose from the dead all to accomplish salvation for all who would come to him in repentance and faith. That's the gospel. That is the fertilizer being dumped onto your life, and God is saying, repent, come to me. The Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He desires for all to come to him and be saved. If you are a believer this morning, the possibility of today being your last day does not need to terrify you because you will be immediately ushered into the arms of your Savior in heaven. But if you're an unbeliever, the possibility of today being your last day, that should be a terrifying thought to you. And it should cause you to thank God for his mercy, for giving you time, to thank him for his patience. And you should not waste one more second of your life in rebellion against God. I don't know if a gunman would walk through these doors in the next 30 seconds. If you're a believer, it's fine because you're going to be with Christ. If you're an unbeliever, this was the best it got for you. Because on the other side of that grave is a lake of fire. The phrase that Jesus repeated in verses 3 and 5 was this. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you are refusing to give your life without reservation to Christ, then you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin today. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you and rule you today. That is the response required. It's not walking an aisle or raising your hand. It's repent and believe. That is the response that the Lord Jesus himself requires. Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you do that, he will save you. He will forgive you for all of your sins. He will clothe you in his own righteousness, and he will make you an adopted son of his Father in heaven. If you give your life to Christ, you will be able to sleep soundly tonight because you will know that the sovereign God, the good God, is now your Father, and your soul is being held safely in his almighty hands. And you'll be able to say with the psalmist that we read earlier, Psalm 91, You'll be able with him to testify that you need not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. You will not need to fear because you have begun to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. You've begun to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You've made the Lord your refuge and fortress and you've acknowledged him as your God in whom you trust. And you'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray.